Hey guys, Pastor David here. Uh, welcome to Victory Church. We're excited that you have uh, found us, that you're joining us today. We're a community of authentic, spirit-led Christ followers transformed to walk in victory. That is our vision here at Victory Church, and that is what we're praying will become a reality for us as a church here at Victory. So I'm glad that you guys found us. I'm glad that you're joining us today, and we're excited about kicking off this sermon here in just a moment. Of Christ will never lose its power. Oh, in our lives, man, that's just. We could sing that all day, every day, seven days a week, and it wouldn't be enough. That's what it's all about, man. Um, such a powerful song. So today we're we're gonna be wrapping up the series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks, the perspective series we've been in for the last couple of weeks, and I've really enjoyed this series, man. There's so much freedom uh, found in learning to see our lives and the world around us from a God's eye view, from God's perspective. It doesn't matter where you go, what situation you find yourself in. When you honestly put on God's perspective over your life, the situations you find yourself in, the world around you, then you can be filled with peace and joy even in like the darkest prisons of life of going up against the biggest giants around. And not only can you be filled with peace and joy, but you can also be used to shine the light of Jesus Christ into this dark and dying world. Be a part of God's plan of redemption to save and set free so many people, even in some of the most unlikely, seemingly impossible ways. And the story that we're going to be diving into today is no different. Today we're going to be diving into a story, um, a seemingly hopeless situation that God completely turned around. And not only that, but he used a seemingly hopeless person who from the world's perspective would never amount to anything. But God used this guy to save an entire nation. And as we dive into this story, we're also going to find that from God's perspective, anyone can be used to accomplish his plans. That's our big idea today. From God's perspective, anyone can be used to accomplish his plans. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come boldly before your throne. And it's only because of the cross. It's only because of you, Jesus. Father, whenever you tore that veil, allowing us access to your throne room where we can boldly come before you as your children, God, we just thank you so much for that. God, as we gather here today, Holy Spirit, I pray that you just pour out your anointing, your blessings over our lives, open our hearts and our minds to anything, everything that you have for us, God, break chains, break shackles in our lives, open our minds, help us to see your word in a fresh new way. Draw us to you, God, because that's what this is all about, a relationship, a love relationship with you because of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I just submit this, whole, this, whole, this time to you, this service to you, this sermon to you. This is yours. Do with it what you will. Make and mold us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for our mothers, too. We've said this so many times, but we just can't thank you so much. They're just such an incredible, incredible blessing to us. Thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so today we're going to be diving into the story of a very, very unlikely hero. Um, and this story is found in the book of Judges. But before we dive into this guy's story, I first want us to kind of step back and look at, take a bigger picture um, at this book, the book of Judges. Because through all throughout this book, you see this crazy cycle taking place over and over and over again, this crazy cycle that's taken place. Dr. Heinzen from Liberty University um, describes it as, one, a failure on God's people, two, repentance, 
And then three, restoration. First, failure on God's people. Two, repentance. Three is restoration. And it goes something like this. So first, they'd be in this season where it's kind of easy, it's prosperous, they've got God's blessings, things are going well, pretty easy in their life, right? Or at least easier than it has been. And then what happens, they start getting complacent. They start getting kind of lazy, lackadaisical, um, and they start turning to other things rather than God thinking, okay, I got this, you know, kind of straddling the fence a little bit. One thing leads to another, it's a, a slippery slope. They're right back into idol worshiping and all these other things. And then when they start doing that, they start reaping the repercussions of their sinful actions and their sinful decisions. This period of judgment and torment, God would, um, in the Old Testament, time and time again, allow, it wasn't God doing it, but he would allow these enemy armies, nations, to come in and kind of wreak havoc. And the Israelites would just be in this season of judgment. They would cry out to God for help. God would raise up this judge, thus the name, the book of Judges. All these guys that God would raise up, God would use this person to save the nation of Israel time and time again. Then they would have another season of prosperity, blessing, kind of ease and peace. And this cycle continued on and on and on all through, not, on, not only that book, but also throughout the, really the entire Bible. And really, um, as we think, of the, think about this, when we read this book of Judges, we see this cycle unfolding time and time again. It's easy for us to think, man, why in the world are these guys continuing to go down the same crazy road over and over and over again? Because you keep on seeing it in the stories. You're like, why have they not learned their lesson? It's easy for us to do as we're reading the Bible and reading these stories, but what we need to do is kind of back up, look in the mirror, and ask ourselves, man, do I see that same crazy cycle taking place in my own life? Because we do it all the time, man. We go through these easy seasons in life and where it's a little bit more blessing, we, you know, uh, it may be easier than it was before, a little bit of prosperity financially, whatever it may be, a relationship issue, God can, you know, helping us through the season. Then we got lazy, lackadaisical, fall right back into the same daggone patterns that we were in before, the same sins, sometimes different sins. And then we cry out to God for help because all of a sudden the repercussions of our own sinful, dumb actions, stupid actions, start coming up and catching up with us, we cry out to God, we look to the Savior, he's already sent Jesus Christ, who bails us out time and time and time again. The same crazy cycle that takes place. It kind of reminds me of like one of those wind-up toys. You guys know what I'm talking about? You wind up like a little toy, and it might have like these wheels, so you wind up, you put it on the floor, and the thing starts like scooting across the floor until it like rams into a wall. And when it rams into a wall, what does it do? It doesn't stop, it doesn't back up, turn itself around, it keeps on ramming, into the wall until somebody goes over, flips it around, winds it up, then it you know, goes across the floor again until it hits another wall, doing the same thing or the same daggum wall over again. Keeps on doing this. And that's kind of that picture that I have on my mind as I'm reading um, this book and Judges, really the whole Bible, and really when we look at so many of our own lives, the same mistakes over and over and over again, the same mistakes these people are making over and over again, and they never seem to learn their lesson. And in this story that we're going to be diving into today, it's no different, man. This story literally starts off with these people, these Israelites, that are once again choosing sin and idols. They're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how this story starts off. They've had a, peace, a season of peace and prosperity. Then the story starts off, and we see they're right back, square one, doing the same daggum thing they were doing before, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So what does God do? He allows this, um, this uh, other nation to come in, this, these people to come in and wreak havoc. These people are the Midianites. And the Midianites have been described as like these desert bandits. Um, what they would do, these guys, they would come in swarms, tons 
of them and overwhelm the Israelites. They would pillage their farms. They would take all of their crops, all of their livestock, anything that you had. They would take it when it came to food, livestock, whatever they wanted and more. It didn't matter. And they, it was so bad through this season. They were being terrorized so much from these people that there was just like mass death because of um, they didn't have food to eat. They didn't have livestock because the Midianites would just take all this. And it got so bad, too, that the Israelites were actually taking their families, going up into the mountains, and living in caves. Like, imagine that for a second. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. You're out there. You're like, you know, a farmer. You got your family. You're out there with your sheep. And then all of a sudden, these guys, these like desert bandit type guys, come up, swarm you, and they say, hey, we're going to take all of your sheep. We want all of your crop, all of your livestock, all of the food that you've worked really, really hard to, to, to get, and anything else that we want, we're going to take it. And here, you got two choices. You can give it to us freely, or we'll kill you, your entire family, and we'll take it anyways. Those are your two choices. And then they take all this stuff. You go up. You don't have any food for your family. You go. You hide away in the mountains and caves with your little kids. That's this situation. And guess what? It was going on for seven years. Seven years this went on. So what do you think happens? Israel cries out to God. Like, God, help us. Save us from these Midianites. This is horrible. We're being terrorized for seven years. Our kids can't eat. We need your help. God, save us. But here's the thing. Initially, when they're crying out, they're not crying out in true repentance. They're actually crying out because they have regret. It's not regret for the sin, though. It's regret because of the repercussions of the sin, the repercussions of their dumb, stupid, sinful actions. That's what they, re they, they regret. See, true repentance, we've got to understand, guys, true repentance brings out regret and sorrow over the sin itself, not just regret and sorrow over the repercussions for the sin. And true repentance also brings out something else called change and transformation, not perfection, but genuine change and transformation. You look at the Israelites' life, these guys aren't getting it. Time and time and time again, they are not getting it. They have maybe these tiny little seasons where they're kind of repenting, but then they go right back into the same cycle over and over and over again. And the reason that this is so important, we think, look at this sin thing and repentance. Why is this so important? Sin, multiple reasons why this is important, but one really quick thing. We have to understand that sin separates us from the presence of God. That's what sin does. It separates us. It drives like this wedge between us and the presence of God. So that's what sin does. And when we're unrepentant, we have this wedge between us and the presence of God. So when you repent, it's the opposite effect. It takes the wedge out so we have access to the presence of God. So that's what God's heart is in this situation. He doesn't want to just send some kind of a judge, somebody to just superficially save them. He wants them to actually like be, you know, he wants to draw them in so he can protect them. He can love on them and have this love relationship with them. That's God's heart. That's God's desire in this. He desires true repentance so he can love on them, take care of them, and so that they can actually bring them in to his presence. And so what does he do? They're crying out to God, God, save us. This is horrible. Seven years under these Midianites that are terrorizing. So what does God do? He sends a prophet to preach to them. That's what he does at first. He sends a prophet to preach to these guys, to call them to repentance again, because that's his desire, is repentance, to take the wedge out that separated them from his presence, to draw them in. So after the prophet is sent to preach to these guys, God sends, he raises up a judge. Raises up a judge. But there's something that happens in this story. And it's not just something that happens. It's also kind of when and how it happens. That's really interesting. It tells us a lot about God. We see him doing it time and time again in the, in the Bible, but we also see him doing it in our own lives. See, God, he takes the first 
step. He initiates this plan of redemption, this plan of salvation before the Israelites ever truly, fully repent. He takes the first steps. What we have to understand is God never compromises on several things. For one, he never compromises on his holiness, and he never compromises on his perfect standards. And we see that when God first sends the prophet, rather than the judge, he sends the prophet first to call them to repentance. Never compromises on those things, his holiness and his perfect standards. But something else God never compromises on is his scandalous love and grace for us. Scandalous love and grace for you and for me. And we see a beautiful and a profound picture of these two things, God's uh, perfect standards and his scandalous love and grace, both on display at the same time on the cross of Christ, where God's wrath meets God's grace, and it equals our salvation. This beautiful, beautiful picture that we see on the cross of Christ. Romans 5.8 says that God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, God has already made the move. Anytime that we repent, anytime, it is simply a response to God's move of grace. That's what repentance is. And talking about grace, we're going to dive into this story. We're going to see who this judge actually was, this judge that God is going to raise up, this mighty warrior, this valiant warrior, or at least so you would think. Let's dive into the story. Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 14 is where this is found. It says, the angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, not Oprah Winfrey, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abyssalite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all the wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. All right, right, so don't don't miss this. Don't, Don't miss this. The first time that we see Gideon enter the scene in this story, very first time that he's introduced in the Bible, he is down in a hole in the ground, okay? Don't miss this. This is a deep hole in the ground. It's a wine press. And it's, uh, yeah, it's surrounded by stones, deep hole in the ground. What they would do is they'd throw uh, grapes down in this wine press. Somebody would get down in there, and they would stomp on the grapes to make grape juice, ultimately, to make wine. That's what this was used for. So Gideon is down in this thing, but he ain't stopping on grapes, man. He is threshing wheat in this hole in the ground, deep hole in the ground. There ain't even enough room to do this, man. Like, and this dude is looking ridiculous. And here's the thing, too. Let's use a little common sense. How do you think that he got the wheat back up out of that hole? He had to throw it up. He's, throwing, he's threshing wheat. He's throwing it back up because that's the only way you can get it up out of his hole. So half of the wheat is falling back down on his head as he's throwing this wheat up, looking ridiculous. The reason that he's doing this, get this, he's scared. He is hiding from the Midianites. And you kind of think, okay, well, that makes sense. But here's the thing. They are nowhere in sight. They aren't even there at this point in time. They would come every once in a while, pillage their land, take their crops and all that. But the Midianites aren't there. And guess what? Where would be the perfect place for them to surround him? Possibly a hole in the wall. Where's he going to go? You can't even run. He's in a hole in the wall, or a hole in the ground, rather, threshing wheat. He doesn't even have enough room to do this. He is scared to death, man. This guy is scared of his own shadow. And he's looking ridiculous in this hole in the ground. And then something happens. We see the angel of the Lord come on the scene. Now, who's the angel of the Lord? You know who the angel of the Lord is? The angel of the Lord is God. 
It's Jesus Christ. So anytime you see the angel of the Lord referenced in the Bible, that is uh, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, okay? Not all angels, just the angel of the Lord. So that's who this is, straight up sitting there, looking at Gideon, who's just in a hole in the ground trying to thresh wheat, throwing this wheat up, half of it's falling on his head. He's looking ridiculous. And then he says something. The angel of the Lord, a.k.a. Jesus, says something to Gideon that just blows my mind. It's the craziest thing ever. He says, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. This dude that is hiding in a hole in the ground from people that aren't even there is being called a valiant warrior by God. And then I love Gideon's response here. This is, oh my goodness. So it just tells us so much about him. Gideon's response to God when he says this, because he doesn't realize this is the angel of the Lord. He just, I mean, he probably just thinks it's some Israelite that is just sitting there, right, looking down at him. And he's like, you know, where is God at? That's his response. He's like, where, where is God at? He's essentially blaming God in this moment. He's saying, what do you mean God is with us? God isn't with us. I mean, look at all this stuff that's happening. Look, I mean, all these things that happened with our forefathers and God bailed them out of Egypt and all these, you know, I mean, where is he at? This is seven years that we've been um, just terrorized by the Midianites. Where is God and what he's doing? In these moments, he's blaming God for the repercussions of their own sinful actions. He's blaming God because they're in that season that they are terrorized by the Midianites because they were the ones who sinned and did evil and made these dumb decisions, put themselves in this spot. But he is blaming God for that. How often do we do the same thing? How often do we make these dumb, stupid, sinful decisions in life? And then we, we have the repercussions, this season of judgment, this season where, you know, it's hardship. We look up at God, we point our finger and say, this is your fault. This is your fault. Where are you at? And what Gideon is essentially saying is God has moved away from him. He's not even there anymore. But here's the thing, what we have to understand, what Gideon had to understand, what we have to understand is God never goes anywhere. God is always faithful even when we are not. God never goes anywhere. We move away from God. God does not move away from us. If you're struggling with that in your life today, you feel like the presence of God um, is distant, then you might want to look in the mirror and ask yourself, man, have I moved away? Have I stepped away from God? Because God never moves away from us. He is always faithful, even when we are not. And that's something that Gideon had to learn as well. So, so far in this text, when, when, when uh, Gideon is introduced in this text, we see two things about him. This dude is a coward. He's in a hole in, in the ground, hiding from no one, people that aren't even there. And he's a doubter. He is a doubting coward. But what's interesting in this text is how God views him. That's the world's perspective. He is a doubting coward. But then God comes along, Jesus Christ, and says something else about him. He calls him a valiant warrior. Why in the world would God call this guy a doubting coward, a valiant warrior? Here's why. Here's why. It's because God doesn't see us as we are. God sees us as what we will be. He sees us as what we will become, what he will make us and mold us to be. And that's why when Jesus sees Gideon, he's able to call Gideon a valiant warrior because, catch this, Jesus is going to cloak Gideon in his courage. He's going to cloak him in his might and in his strength. And, and, and here's another thing, catch this. Jesus is not calling Gideon to become courageous. He's not calling him to become brave. He's not even calling him to become a warrior. The only thing that Jesus is calling Gideon to is obedience. That's it. 
He's calling him to obedience. And when Gideon obeys, simply steps out, that little inch of faith, that's it, steps out into that obedience, that's when Jesus Christ would cloak him in his courage and his might and his strength. And then when other people saw him, they would see the courage, the might, the strength of Jesus Christ illuminating from him. That's why even today when people think about Gideon, they think of him as this mighty warrior, this valiant warrior. But the truth is, without Jesus, Gideon is a doubting coward. He is a doubting coward. We're going to see how much of a doubting coward he really is a little bit later. But similar to this, Jesus cloaking Gideon in his courage and his strength and his might, what else does that remind us of? When the Father looks at us as Christians, when the Father looks at us, he no longer sees uh, the sin, the, the, the stains of sin in our life, our filth. He sees the righteousness, the perfection, the holiness of Jesus Christ that we are covered in from head to toe. And it is all because of Jesus, what Jesus did in our place on our cross, covered from head to toe in his righteousness. And then in Judges chapter 6, 15, this mighty warrior, I love that, man. Some versions say mighty warrior, some versions say valiant warrior. So uh, please, Lord, this is what Gideon says, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family. So this is just more proof that this guy is completely unqualified. Not only is he a doubting coward, which we saw before, but this dude himself is saying, dude, I am the weakest of the weak, the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. You do not want me. Here is a long list of all the reasons why I am the least qualified. I mean, you I mean, pick anybody else. You could probably randomly close your eyes and pick somebody. They're going to be a lot better, a lot more qualified than I am. You don't want me. I can't do this. This is the dude that God picked to save Israel. This is the guy that God is going to raise up to be a judge. And God's reply to Gideon is that he would be with him. And he promised Gideon, this is a promise, that he's going to use him to strike down the Midianites. He wasn't going to be alone. God would be with him. And then Gideon continues to doubt. We see all these pictures of Gideon's doubt all throughout this story. And here's one time that he doubts. And uh, he <laughs> He's doing something that we should never do. He's, um, he, he's uh, pushing God. He's um, testing God, right? All the time throughout the Bible, we're told not to test God. Gideon does it several times. This is one instance, all right, which you should never do. But here's the thing. If you're going to test God, you would think that you're probably going to do something kind of cool. You're going to ask for something cool, right? Like, hey, God, can you raise this person from the dead over here? Or can you like make it rain money or something? Or can you, can you part the seas, kind of like what you did with the Red Seas? Can you part these seas? But no, no. You know what Gideon does? He's, asking, he's testing God. He's asking him to perform a miracle. He runs back into his house. He essentially gathers kind of some food and stuff, brings it out, and he asks for like a miracle barbecue in the backyard. That's what Gideon does. That's the miracle that Gideon asked for. It's like the lamest miracle that I've ever heard of in my life, but it was enough for him to see, wow. This is God, because what he does, Jesus, what he does is he actually consumes this whole thing in fire. And so that's enough for Gideon. He's like, wow, I know exactly who this is. And Gideon, actually, we see his fear come out again because he gets so scared. He thinks that he's going to die because he's seen God. That's who this is. He's seen God. But God had just told him, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to strike down the Midianites. But he's so scared, he's just clouded by his fear. God says, look, I'm not going to kill you. You're okay. I can, like, see the angels in this moment. They're probably looking at God, looking at Gideon like, oh, my goodness, this is going to be good. God is going to use this. This guy looks like he's going to pee in his pants every couple of seconds or so. This is going to be crazy. He's going to use this guy 
to save the nation of Israel. So let's keep on going in this story. Judges chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. It says, On that very night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven years old. Then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on top of this mount. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering from the wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his male servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. So here's the thing. God has just proven himself to Gideon. He knows this is the God of the universe that is asking, commanding him to do this, right? To, to cut down these, um, these uh, shear poles and the, the, different, the altar to Baal um, in his daddy's backyard. So what that tells us, a couple of things. It continues to tell us how scared he is. But it also tells us that um, God, um, that this guy Gideon, he had um, altars to false gods in his backyard. He was worshiping the one true God somewhat, but he was also worshiping these false gods, and he had these idols in his backyard. And there's a couple of reasons that God wants these down. For one, it's the obvious. These are false, fake gods, false, fake idols um, in his backyard. So God just wants them out of there, right? The other thing is because God is telling Gideon, look, you can't straddle the fence, dude. You can't straddle the fence. You can't be divided in your worship. Okay, if you are going to worship me, if you are going to follow me is what God is saying, then you can't also follow these other guys. You can't straddle the fence. You cannot be divided in your worship. And the reason that God wanted him to just completely get them out of there, he didn't just say, hey, worship me. He wanted all the idols in his life gone is because you look back at the Bible, the Israelites, this picture is seen time and time and time again where they would repent, these seasons of repentance. But what would they not do? So many times they wouldn't tear down the idols. They didn't tear down the idols. And so what would happen in their generation or a lot of times in the generations after them, their children would stumble, would come right back to those same idols and stumble over those same sins time and time and time again. If we don't remove those idols in our life, man, they just become stumbling blocks to us. And that's true of our lives too. So many people, they end up becoming Christian, they accept Christ, but they hold on to these different things in their life, these idols in their life. And idols aren't just, you read the Bible and you think idols are like this golden calves or like, you know, these, these um, structures or these poles or whatever it may be. It, it, it's, it's not just that. Idols are anything and everything that you put on a pedestal in the place of God. It could be, you know, the pursuit of money, pursuit of power. It, it could be, you know, pursuit of comfort, prestige, whatever it may be, different idols in your life. It could be daggone Netflix, dude. It could be anything, anything that you put in the place of of God, and he's telling them to get all that stuff out. No, don't even leave a, a trace of that stuff. In fact, take it, and I want you to resurrect an idol to me in its place so that I can claim that area of your life and no one else. He couldn't be divided in his worship. So what does Gideon do in this text? He obeys God, which is good. He does obey him, but it's when he obeys him. That's crazy. Catch this. He was so scared. God of the universe is calling him to do this, right? But he was so scared that he wouldn't do it during the day. He did it at night so that nobody could see him. That's how afraid this dude is. Time and time again, we keep on getting these pictures of Gideon as a coward. This dude was a chicken. My professor in, in college um, actually had a nickname for him. He called him Super Chicken. That was his nickname for him. So this is Super Chicken. That's who this dude is. He is such a wuss. He's so scared, man. And so this happens 
Shortly after this, you, you fast forward just a little bit, um, the Midianites are starting to kind of make their way towards the Israelites again. They, do, they keep on doing it. They come back time and time again, and they're going to do the same thing they've been doing for seven years, Pil- you know, pillage their land. They're going to take their crops, their, their livestock, all this stuff. So the Midianites are heading back, and so Gideon, God puts this fire in Gideon, not a literal fire, like a you know, metaphorical, he's, he's just on fire for God. And so he ends up rounding up all of these guys, rallies these guys. And you would think Gideon, at this point in time, he's ready to go. This guy has seen God. He has been called by God. He knows what his commission is. He's going to be used by God to take down all these Midianites. And God has already proven himself because he tested them one time. So this dude is ready to go, right? That's what you would think. But no, no. After this is the famous fleece scene that I think we've all heard of before. That famous fleece scene, man, this dude once again does something that we should never do. Multiple times he keeps on doing it. I think we've all heard of this, but just in case you haven't heard of this before, this fleece scene, he, he does the lamest thing ever. If you're going to test God, man, he does it in the lamest way. He takes this fleece, he puts it out um, on the ground, on the grass. And what he does is he says, okay, God, so, so I'm going to test you one more time just to make sure that you want me Definitely, you want me to do this. You haven't changed your mind. Um, You are who you say you are. So I'm going to take this fleece, and and I'm going to put it on the ground, and I want you to make this fleece wet, and then the rest of the ground around it dry. Just make the fleece wet, the ground around it dry. So present day, that would be like, you know, us taking a T-shirt and be like, God, hey, make this T-shirt wet and the ground around it dry. Like, that's how ridiculous this is. That's how this dude is testing God. He goes back inside, goes to sleep, gets up the next morning. He goes out. Guess what? God is not changed his mind. He is still God. He is still calling Gideon to do this. The fleece is wet. The ground is dry. So you would think at that point, okay, Gideon's ready to go, right? He's finally, he's tested God twice, the God of the universe. He's tested twice, and he's continuing to prove himself, but no. He is still doubting, and he still wants to test God, and he's like, okay, that's great. That's great, God. That was really good. I'm getting this, but but just in case, just in case, can you do this again, but but let's, let's, let's reverse it. We're going to do the opposite of this, okay? So make the ground wet and the fleece dry. Goes back in, next morning comes out, guess what? Same thing. This dude over and over again, proving to us he is a doubting coward. After this, Gideon finally gets it. He only had to test the God of the universe three times and three, see all these different miracles to finally get it. That God is calling him to um, go up against these Midianites. So he gathers tens of thousands of Israelites, tens of thousands of guys to go up against these Midianites. Let's check out what happens next. And Judges chapter 7 now, verses 1 through 3. It says, Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the troops that were with him, got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moriah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to you. Or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turn back, but 10,000 remain. Okay, so what we have to understand in this, in this situation, prior to this text, there were 32,000 Israelite troops. 32,000 Israelite soldiers. There are 130,000 Midianite soldiers. So you would think the world's perspective, Gideon's perspective would say, we don't have enough people. This is a suicide mission. We are going to die 
32,000 against 130,000. Are you kidding me? Like, I mean, he's probably thinking to himself, God's going to bring in some other troops from all, you know, all over the place. They're going to come. They're going to help us. That's probably what's going on in his head about that, about that time. And then all of a sudden, from God's perspective, we see something very different. From God's perspective, he's like, no, you got too many. 32,000 against 130,000 is too many from God's perspective. Why? Because God wanted to make sure, he wanted to ensure that everyone would know exactly who won this battle, exactly who won this victory. It wasn't some man, it wasn't a group of people, it was God. So the best way to do this is he narrowed it down, (laughs) 22,000 people that he ended up uh, making leave. He knew exactly what would happen. So they went from 32,000 to 10 thousand people 10,000 against 130,000 enemy soldiers let's check on check out what happens next verses four through eight then the lord said to gideon there are still too many troops take them down to the water and i will test them for you there if i say to you this one can go with you he can go but if i say about anyone this one cannot go with you he cannot go so he brought the troops down to the water and the lord said to gideon separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue like a dog Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouth was 300 men, and all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand them Midianites over to you, but everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tent, but kept the 300 troops who took the provisions and their trumpets. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. What in the world, man? God just narrowed it down already from 32,000 to 10,000. Now we see in this scene, God narrowed it down from 10,000 to 300 people in Gideon. 300 men in Gideon. (laughs) This is 300 Israelite soldiers, by the way, against 130,000 Midianites. Again, from the world's perspective, they would think this is a suicide mission. How in the world is this going to happen? But from God's perspective, they had way too many people. And here's the thing, that's not all. There's something that a lot of times it's often missed about these people, about these specific soldiers, the 300 soldiers that God um, wants to stay with Gideon. So we have to understand there are three kind of main categories, kind of main groups of soldiers in any army, okay? Three kind of main groups of soldiers. The first group you've got are like the most cowardly, scaredest, just, you know, wusses of them all. They're so scared that they're like almost paralyzed. They're just going along with what everybody else is doing and just kind of crippled in fear. That's this group of guys, okay? Then you've got a second group of guys who are scared and they don't want to be there. And honestly, if you were to ask them if they, if they you know, want to leave, they would tell you in a heartbeat, yeah, I'll leave. And they're scared, but they're at least willing. They're at least brave enough to admit, yeah, dude, I'm out of here. You know, you give me the chance to go, I'm out of here. Audi 5000, right? That's that second group. The third group is the ones that they're scared just like anybody else. Everybody's scared in battle. But these guys are brave. They know what's going on. They know um, they've counted the cost, and they are willing to give whatever it requires, even if it requires their life, to see this to the end. That's the third group, the bravest of these guys. Now, in the the text that we read before this one, we saw um, God essentially asked Gideon, and he told him, hey, look, tell everybody, if if they want to go home, just like, you know, kind of raise your hand, and you can go home, Right? So all these guys that raise their hand, they're like, hey, I'm, I'm out of here. That's that second group of guys. They're like, okay, you don't have to ask me twice. I mean, I'm, I'm out of here, dude. Peace. Here's my stuff. I don't want to be here. I'm scared. I'm gone. That's the second group. All of a sudden, out of there. You got two more groups. You got the, 
the biggest cowards of them all, paralyzed in fear. They were so scared. They're just thinking, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen if I raise my hand? What's going to happen? Oh, goodness. Like, going through their head over and over and over again, it's like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This is horrible. I don't want to be here. You know, but they're so paralyzed in fear, they're just going along with everybody else is doing. So them and the bravest ones. Then you get to this um, water scene. And I want to read you something from this water scene here. Okay, this is, this is what it says. It says, the number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300 men, and all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. Okay, so the bravest guys, you got the, the weakest, you got the, the, the most cowardly, then you got the bravest. Those are the ones that left. The bravest guys understand that whenever you get to a, a spot where, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to get some water. We're going to rest a little bit. It's okay. You can rest, okay? Just kind of take it easy, calm down, get some water. You need water to kind of replenish yourself so you can be ready for the fight up ahead, right? So these guys are probably going to like, you know, bury their head in the water, just kind of take a few moments to relax. They know the enemy troops are so far off, they're completely fine. There ain't nobody hiding behind the daggum sticks over here or a rock. You're okay. Take a break. And you do this. Armies, soldiers, they do this. You, you have to take breaks for people, right? So you drink some water. That's what they're doing. They're taking a moment to, to take a break. The ones that are so scared that they can't even relax just for a moment to get some water, they have to get down. And the, the text says they lap it like a dog. They're getting down like this, lapping like a dog. The reason they're doing this is so they can keep their eyes up. They can keep their eyes up so they can constantly look to make sure, oh my goodness, is somebody going to pop out behind that rock over there? What's going on? They are scared to death, crippled in fear. They can't even relax for a few moments just to get some water. That's how scared these guys are. So God has just narrowed down in this scene three of the main categories. He's narrowed down to just one category left. And you would think, from the world's perspective, you would think it would be the 300 bravest men of them all, right? It's the complete opposite. It is the complete opposite, man. These are the 300 most cowardly guys in the whole gang, in the whole bunch. And again, why did he, God do this? He did this intentionally because he wanted everyone to know without a doubt that he was the one who won this battle, that won this victory. It wasn't these guys. And then lastly, the last text we're going to be in today, Judges chapter 7, verses 16 through 23, it says, Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and gave each of the men a trumpet in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other. Watch me, he said, this is Gideon, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone else around me blows um, our trumpets, you are to blow your trumpet all around the camp. Then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men were with him, went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the centuries had been stationed. They blew their trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The 300 companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hand, their trumpets in their right hands, and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp, and the entire Midianite army began to run. They cried out as they fled. When, Gideon, when Gideon's men blew their, their 300 trumpets, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. They fled to Acacia, house of the direction of uh, Zeriah, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola. I love all these names, man, near Tabetha. Then the men of Israel were called from uh, Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Man, I love this story. So in this scene, 300 guys, okay, there are 300 men. And Gideon breaks them down into three companies, company of the 300. One advantage they had, other than the fact that they had God on their side, was they had the upper ground. 
Okay, so Gideon takes these 300 men, divides them up. He takes 100 over here, 100 over here, 100 over here. Okay, so they're lining this area, this ridge. It's dark outside. The Midianites are down in this valley. So when they come up there with all of these torches, what happens in the middle of the night, it looks like to the Midianites that are looking up from this valley that they are completely surrounded by this massive army, this huge army. The reason is because usually in an army, you would have roughly one torchbearer for about every hundred troops. The reason for that is because a torchbearer didn't have a shield. So you didn't want a bunch of guys, tons of guys to go around without the shield. So it was just as little as possible. One guy for about a hundred gave him just enough light to be able to fight. So when they see 300 torches lining them all around and they've got the upper ground they're like oh my goodness this is a massive army we are overwhelmed they're going to come and take us over they've got the high ground on top of that they've got these trumpets every single one of the 300 men have trumpets now what's important to know about that is the trumpets usually in an army you would have give or take about a dozen trumpets roughly for a thousand soldiers per 1,000 you got 300 men. Not only are they seeing that it looks like they're, they're surrounded by a massive army, they are hearing 300 trumpets. To them, they are seeing and hearing that they are completely surrounded by a massive army. That doesn't, doesn't stop there. Then you've got the pitchers. So what's up with these daggone pitchers? That's just weird, right? Well, several um, commentators believe that when the pitchers broke, they all broke them at the same time, that where they were at, the echo was so loud that it sounded like tens of of thousands of swords all being drawn at the exact same time. So when the Midianites look up and see this, they are freaking out. They are in terror. They are like, oh my goodness, we are going to die. A massive army is surrounding us. There's no chance. So they just start going crazy. They run away, and in, the, in their flight, they're so just kind of discombobulated. It's dark. They are hacking away at anything that they can, just trying to get away, save themselves, and they start killing each other off, man. That's what happens in this scene. I love this, man. And what I love about this story, a couple of things that I love about this story, man, there are so many pictures embedded within this story that show us the difference from the world's perspective and God's perspective. Tons of pictures of this. But something else that I love about this story is so often this story in and of itself is viewed from the wrong perspective. So often we read this story and we look at this story as if this is about a, an extremely brave, rough, big old strong guy and 300 other extremely brave, rough, tough guys. This is not that story. This is a story about super chicken leading a bunch of other 300 other chickens to stand up against 130,000 Midianite soldiers and God used them to take those soldiers down. That's what this story is about, man. I love this story. And through this story, there's two practical things that we can take away in order to help us see that God can use anyone to accomplish his plans. And through this, through these couple of things, we're also able to see through God's perspective our own lives and the lives of the people around us. The first thing is that, man, none of us, not one of us deserve to be used by God. You've got to understand that not one of us if you're somebody that's struggling with that today, maybe thinking, man, I'm skilled, you know, God, God is blessed to use me. I'm going to tell you right now, man, I hate to bust your bubble. Not really. Um, that God does not need to use you. He does not need any of us. Not one person. He chooses to use us, catch this, because he loves us. He chooses to use us because 
He loves us. All these other people that have accomplished great things in the name of Jesus Christ, man, it wasn't in their own strength. It wasn't in their own wisdom, their own power. They were able to, to accomplish this because God accomplished it through them. God does not need any of us. None of us, number one, deserve to be used by God. He chooses to use us. because he loves us. The second thing, the last thing is, man, don't think that God cannot use you because of your past or because of your struggles. Don't think that God can't use you because of your past or because of your struggles. This is why putting on God's perspective is so important because from the world's perspective, every single leader that we see in the Bible, every giant of the faith that we see in the Bible, we're completely unqualified and we're failures in some way from the world's perspective. Every single one of them. God looks past the struggles to the heart. Think about this, King David. King David was an adulterer and a murderer. He was an adulterer and a murderer. That's just one guy I'm talking about here. But when God saw him, that was the world's perspective. When God saw him, he saw a man after his own heart. He saw the greatest leader, the greatest king that the nation of Israel had ever seen. But again, he was an adulterer and murderer. How many churches would he not be allowed to preach at today? That's the world's perspective, man. And the story that we just came, uh, that we just dove into, Gideon, from the world's perspective, this guy was a coward and a doubter. But when God looked at him, he saw him as he would make him and mold him to be, which is a mighty and a valiant warrior. Guys, when we put on God's perspective and start to see that none of us deserve to be used by God and that God can use us in spite of our past and our struggles, then we'll start to see our lives and the people around us as God does, that anyone can be used to accomplish his plans. Anyone. As the worship team comes up, I want to encourage you guys to just kind of look inside and ask yourselves, man, what are some of the situations, the places, or maybe even the people that God has placed into my life um, that he wants to use? What are some of the people, who are some of the people that he placed in my life that he's put me there intentionally to be able to spread the gospel, to talk to them about Jesus, to invite them to church? Or maybe a situation that seems hard and just, you know, like I can't do this, but maybe that's the whole point. Maybe God has you there for a reason, to show you and other people around you how much he loves you and that he's there for you. He's going to protect you and take care of you in the middle of that situation. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what your past looks like, God can and will use you. But here's the thing, we have to obey. Gideon had to get to that point where he obeyed God. It took a long time, but he finally got to that point. And that's when God, through the obedience, turned this coward, this doubting coward, into a valiant, a mighty warrior. But it wasn't until he Maybe God is calling you in a certain area of your life, a certain aspect of your life to obey him, to give it over to him. Maybe there's some places in your life where you've been holding on to these idols, whatever they may look like in your life. And God is calling you to tear those down. Because I'm telling you something, man, when God tears those things down, that is when God will work in you and through you in mighty and powerful ways. If you're here today and you've never responded to the gospel, then I want to encourage you, don't leave here today, please, without talking to someone. I'd love to talk to you about who this Jesus is. He loves you so much, he will save you right where you are. As we stand together, go ahead and stand, guys. We're going to worship God together. And as we sing, you respond. Guys, first off, I just want to say thank you for joining us today for the sermon. And uh, whether you're somebody that's come to our church or you're somebody that lives locally, you go to another church, maybe you don't even live here. 
Um, I just want I just want to say first and foremost, thank you for joining us, and uh, I, I want to encourage you to to respond in some way today because you know when we hear a sermon, when we read the Bible, when we um, whatever it may may be, the point of that is. Um, for God to speak to us in some way, shape, or form. And so, if you are a Christian, um, you've been a seasoned Christian, you know the Lord already, then the way that we can respond is just by, you know, asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with the convictions that you're giving me uh, based on this sermon, the way that you're speaking to me? What do you want me to do? And then respond to that. Maybe it's an area of your life that you've been holding on to um, and, and you haven't been giving it to Him. And I want to encourage you to give that to Him and step out in faith. Or maybe if it's, um, you know, some unbelief that you've had and, and God has really convicted you of some things. Um, you know, whatever it may be for you, it's different for everyone. I want to encourage you to respond to God and, and step in His direction. And, and the other thing too is if, if you are somebody that maybe you've listened to this and you've never responded to that gospel message, you've never been, been impacted by that gospel message, but now something is happening, God is kind of stirring in your heart and in your mind a little bit, then I want to encourage you to step out in faith, respond to that gospel message. And throughout the book of Acts, um, Acts tells us our history as a church. Uh, it shows us that you know, what that response looks like. So number one is to repent. And this word repent, all that means is just to turn from, you know, our sinful ways, our sinful desires, you know, turn from making ourself God and all these other things in life, God, and turn to God and just give Him our life. Um, and, and then on top of that response, after the repentance, it comes something else. It's called baptism. And, and baptism is so key. It's so important. It's seen all throughout um, that book and Acts and, and the importance and significance of it. Um, it's this symbol of death to the old self and, and then um, birth to uh, this new life in Christ. And we're, we're, we, we're, uh, we die with Christ to the old self and we are raised with Christ to, to walk in this new life. And it's a command from Jesus. So I want to encourage you, if you have made that commitment to Christ, if you have stepped out um, and you are wanting to follow Christ, then I want to encourage you to take that next step and be baptized somewhere. Whether it's if you have a local church that you want to go be baptized at, I encourage you to do that. Um, if you don't have a church, we would love to be able to celebrate that with you um, here. But I encourage you first and foremost to do that, to, to talk with someone, um, to get counsel on what this means, to seek discipleship as well. So. Um, I encourage you to do those things. We would love to talk with you. We are praying for you. I want you to know that you are loved and you are prayed for. Arms. And so there's some links that we're going to provide below for you. Uh, please check that out. Um, and again, if you, if you have any prayer requests, um, please contact us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk with you. And we're excited about taking this next step with you.